welcome. Welcome back, Chris, for a little bit. <laughs> Straight from Mexico, right? And Elsie, welcome back to you, too. I'm assuming you, did you get in this morning? Okay. I looked back and I saw Chris back there. I was like, wow, I wasn't expecting to see him here today. Must be fresh from the, the deep south. <coughs> welcome back. Good to have you guys back again. It just feels kind of small this morning. It seems like we're missing a bunch of people. And I think we are, but that's all right. Good to have everybody here that's here. <coughs> all right, so this morning I'm going back to Revelation. I know it's been a little bit, there's been a few detours here and there over the last month or two. <coughs> and it doesn't seem like we're getting anywhere very fast, but I guess that's all right. <coughs> We are in Revelation chapter 2, <coughs> and I've been, I've been kind of taking the letters to the churches one, one at a time. Every time I get ready for this, I think, well, maybe one of them is short enough, I'll do two of them, but they don't end up that way, so I guess we'll just do one letter at a time. <coughs> so today, we're at the third one of the seven. Um, it's chapter 2 of Revelation, starting in verse 12, and I'm going to read from 12 to 17. This is the letter to the church in Pergamum. All right, Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on, on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. <clears throat> So Pergamum was the northernmost city of these seven cities that these letters are written to. They're all not really very far apart. They're in, they're in a similar geographical area. Um, I say not very far apart. I didn't look too deeply into the map this time because it's not that important for this one. Um, I don't know, I think maybe it's 400 miles or so from like Pergamum to the furthest one south, uh, which is Laodicea. Um, and then they're all kind of interspersed in between there. <coughs> Pergamum was, <coughs> actually before I go there, let me, let me back up a little bit. So as, as I go through these, these churches, um, there's been some really interesting things that I have, that I have learned and also uh, just some interesting perspectives that people have had of these letters throughout the centuries for the last 2,000 years since, since they were written. 
<clears throat> and one of them is this. In my, in my studies, I came across one idea, and this was actually in one of the early church writings. I think it was Lactantius who was writing this, and he would have been, I didn't look exactly, he would have been a little bit later in the early church period, so probably a 150 years at least, or 200 years after John. <clears throat> but he was, he was saying in his discourse about Revelation that, you know, there's, there's seven churches that John wrote to, um, which the number seven often signifies is the number of God. It, it signifies perfection and completeness. <clears throat> and so he was saying, you know, just because he wrote to seven churches doesn't mean that there was only seven churches or that these were even the biggest of the ones out there. It's just chose seven. I guess Christ did it because Christ gave this to John. Chose seven and, and you know, wrote these letters to them. What's also interesting is that Paul, when he wrote his epistles, also wrote to seven churches. Now, he wrote more than seven epistles, but there are seven written to churches. And then the rest of his epistles, I think there's, is there 13 total? I didn't count that either because <clears throat> it's not that important. But seven of them, you've got Corinthians. Obviously, we're counting First and Second Corinthians as one, because it's both the same church you have, you know. Um, well, actually, let's start at the beginning. It'll make it easier for me. You've got Romans, then you've got Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Thessalonians. Um, what's the other one? I didn't write this down. This was not exactly part of my notes. Uh, but there's one more. Did I not count Corinthians? Yeah, I didn't. I didn't count Corinthians in that. So those, those are seven churches that he wrote to. And he wrote others, but they were addressed to individuals. And he was saying how somehow or another, this is, I don't know why God does this. I don't, I don't understand the significance of numbers nearly like probably the, the Eastern peoples do, which, are, which were the Jews. Um, we as Greek thinkers, we use numbers differently. <clears throat> but I just I thought it was kind of interesting that there's seven letters from Paul to churches there's seven letters here and each one kind of speaks to um, different places that churches are I think if you take these letters and you take pretty much every church throughout the last 2,000 years of church history and you read these you can always place yourself into one of these places and he is speaking like as if he's speaking directly to you. And I know, you know, as we go through this, there's also multiple places that can speak directly to us. Just because, let's say, the, the, the letter to Ephesus talks about regaining their first love. For me, it feels like that's often where I find myself, that letter to Ephesus. Yet at the same time, there's other places where I can really see where I'm at or where maybe our church is at and stuff like that. So I'm going to attempt, as I have done in some of the other letters, to make some application, you know, what was written to this church? How does it apply to us today? And it's, it's also interesting, you know, he wrote to these different churches and they were in different places. Some of them were under severe persecution and he's just 
encouraging them to keep the faith and stand strong in the face of that. Um, those, that's not exactly where we are at right now today. Now, someone over in the Middle East or, say, China, some places in Asia, um, other places around the world, they would read that letter right now today, and they're like, that's, it's like it's written directly to me. <clears throat> the, the Pergamum Church uh, is one of the ones that I think we can apply pretty well to us today. <clears throat> and there's, there's a number of, of different places. We're kind of going to take, us, take a, a concept, dig into that, go to another one. There's about three or four different ones that we're going to kind of dig into. And the first one <clears throat> is in verse 12, where his, his greeting to them is, this is the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. And this is my, my mind thinking. So I was like, okay, two-edged sword. I wonder where else in Scripture t- it talks about two-edged swords. And what's this thing with a two-edged sword? And so I, I put the word sword into my uh, <coughs> Strong's Concordance search engine. And there are just a little over 400 verses that talk about a sword. Just a sword. We're not at double edge yet. Just sword. It's all over the place. I was kind of surprised how often it talks about swords. However, out of those, it's 404 verses that come up in that strong search engine with the word sword. Out of those 400, there are five where it's a double-edged sword. (coughs) I'm not going to read all of them, but we're going to talk about a few of them. One of them is in Psalm 149.6. And Proverbs 5.4, if you want these, you can write them down. <coughs> um, those are the only two in the Old Testament that talk about a double-edged sword. And then probably the most well-known reference to a two-edged sword is in Hebrews 4.12. And I'm going to read that. <coughs> the reason I'm not going to read the Proverbs and the Psalms, it's doesn't really, it mentions a two-edged sword, but if you go back and read it, you'll see it, it doesn't seem like it's, I don't know, maybe it's significant, but it just didn't seem like it was really significant with, with what a two-edged sword is, it just mentioned a two-edged sword. <clears throat> so, in Hebrews 4.12, it says this, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Everybody's heard that verse probably hundreds of times. And then the other two times, there's three times in the, Old, in the New Testament, twice in the Old Testament. There's Hebrews 4.12, then there's Revelation chapter 1, verse 16, which is the initial um, greeting of Christ to John when he's in the vision. He talks about the two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. And then here in Revelation chapter 2, he once again mentions this two-edged sword thing. And here's what I have come to that I think is significant about a two-edged sword versus a single-edged sword. So there was, the sword is probably the most prominent um, weapon of war throughout human history. Obviously, you know, in the last 500 years, give or take, um, 
firearms have become way more. I mean, that's the weapon of war today. But for, for more or less, you know, 6,500 years of human history, the sword was, was it. That was the main, the main thing. There was, you know, spears and bows and arrows and all that too. But the sword, and that in the Old Testament, many times <coughs> when the sword is talked about, it's, it's, it's not just speaking of a sword as in, you know, I have a, a big knife and I'm going to poke you with it. it it's, it's a word that is used um, almost as, as death. You know, I'm going to put you to the sword. or I'm, it's, it's, it's used like that. <clears throat> so we all know what that is. And so I, I looked at, okay, two-edged sword. So when did that become a thing? And they were actually a thing way, way, way back. There's very, very old swords that have two edges. However, <coughs> the main difference between a single-edged sword <coughs> and a two-edged sword is, is, is its intended purpose. So most of the time when you have a single-edged sword, it is meant for cutting and slashing like this. Those of you who know anything about swords know that the, the Japanese samurai sword is a very well-known single-edged sword. Uh, they're probably some of the best and the sharpest for cutting things. Um, I'm sure you've seen videos of them trying to cut a pig in half, a hanging pig with a Japanese sword, and they do it once in a while with one, one cut. <coughs> but that's what a single-edged sword is generally the best at and there's straight ones there's curved ones and some of the ones that are straight are okay at doing the other function but they're mostly met that, that that's their main purpose is slashing and cutting however a two-edged sword can be dual purpose but it's better at doing that thrusting straight in because you've got you know various coats of mail sometimes there was chain mail um Back before they could make chain mail, they would make really heavy, heavy cloth woven very tightly that would, you know, when, you, when you'd hit sideways with a sword, it could stop that and keep from, from cutting. However, uh, a two-edged sword that comes down to a fine point that's sharpened on both edges is very, very good at parting whatever it is that it is, it's trying to go through. And I think therein, in that, lies the reason that this is likened. So God is likening himself. In Revelation, it's Jesus Christ himself telling us that he's the one that carries the two-edged sword. And here in Hebrews, it's talking about the word of God. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I think that really captures the essence of what Christ is saying when he is telling us he's the one that carries the two-edged sword. There is nothing, there's nothing hidden from the ability for the sword, that two-edged sword, to get to. He can get to the heart of the matter. It doesn't, care. it doesn't matter what kind of armor. It doesn't matter what's on. It is sharp enough and pointy enough to get through whatever it is and get to the heart of the matter. <clears throat> and he sees it all. 
He can get to everything. He can, he can get all the way down to the thoughts and intentions and sometimes even the intentions of our hearts are so deep that we ourselves don't even know they're there. <clears throat> I remember years ago, Steve Stutzman was here and he told a story and it's stuck in my mind ever since. He told a story of a time when, I, don't, I won't remember all the details, but I can get the main gist of it. <clears throat> he was part of a group of people that were really praying for this one guy. And they would get together and they would pray for him. They were praying for his salvation. And throughout, as time went on, he had an opportunity one day to lead this guy to Christ. And he, he was pretty young at this point, Steve was, and he, he just felt pretty good about himself. You know, I, I led this guy to Christ. This is fantastic. And shortly after this, one day he was washing dishes. And kind of, you know, more or less patting himself proverbially, for proverbially on the back um, for, for doing this great evangelistic work. And he, he, had, he witnessed to this guy and he got saved and was really feeling really good about himself. And suddenly, he said it was like God hit him with a sledgehammer and said, well, you know, that's a good thing that you did, but why'd you do it? And he didn't really, as he thought about it, he, he didn't really want to admit the answer because he had brought it to him. And the actual answer to that question was because I wanted recognition, because I wanted people to know that I did something good. I wanted people to know that, you know, I witnessed to somebody and he got saved. And, I, and it just kind of, kind of rocked his world and I just I rem have remembered that story ever since he told that and it make it it brings it to the forefront when you're talking about this kind of thing so it was a good thing we do a lot of good things and even when he did it he didn't he did not even th really think about what his actual deep intention was of doing a good thing and bringing someone to Christ in a way to get recognition himself but yet, Christ, with his sharp two-edged sword, was able then to pierce in there and to lay that open and bring him to repentance over that. And that's, that's something I need to think about. How many times do I have I done good things, but my intentions were not exactly pure? <clears throat> it's just something to think about. We won't spend a whole lot more time on that. But that's what a two-edged sword is for. It's for piercing and dividing and getting to the heart of the matter. <clears throat> and for some reason or another, Christ wanted the church at Pergamum to know that he was the one that carries the two-edged sword. He knows it all, and he can get to the heart of the matter. All right, verse 13. We're going to kind of switch gears here. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. There's a couple things here. First of all, um, I'm going to talk a little about Antipas. Who was Antipas? Um, we really don't have a lot of information at all about him. Um, biblically, we don't have much. Early church writings, we don't have much. Um, 
basically, the only information we have is, is a tradition carried by the Eastern Orthodox Church. And this is what they say about Antipas. Whether or not it's correct or not, I really don't know. Not really any good way to verify it, but I'll at least tell you what it is. So in, in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, Antipas was a bishop, presbyter, minister, whatever you want to call it, at Pergamum, who was ordained by the Apostle John himself. Probably in the time of Nero, maybe in Domitian, somewhere in that 60 to 70 AD time frame. And he was, he ended up getting martyred. And you might have heard about this before. He was the one, according to this tradition, that was thrown into a, a hollow brass bull and roasted alive or roasted to death in the hollow brass bulls. Like, um, it might be in the martyr's mirror. I'm not sure because I know I've heard the story before. It was, it was the place where, um, it was a place of sacrifice to one of the, one of the multiple gods uh, of Pergamum. And, but what the tradition actually says is that so he died as if just going to sleep. And then after it, everything cooled off, the rest of the, some of the church people, this says the saints, came and they actually took his body, which was unharmed by the fire, and they buried him. Whether or not that's the case, I don't know. But there are other, there are other stories similar to that where uh, the fire didn't actually harm it. It killed them, but it didn't actually burn up the body. And the reason, one, the reason he was killed, according to the tradition, is because he was preaching the gospel, obviously, but one of the things, especially, he was casting out demons. And Pergamum was a seat. And it says here this was the seat of Satan, but it says, but it was, it was a place where there was a lot of demonic activity going on, and he was casting out demons, and some of the priests of some of these pagan cults came to him, and they were not happy with him. And they said, you need to stop doing this. You know, you need to worship our gods. You know, not this Jesus of Nazareth. He's new. Our gods, they're, they're ancient. They're old. This Jesus guy, he's just brand new. Like, why would you, why would you worship a new, a new god when, you know, we have ancient gods? And he, he answered them and said, why would I worship a god? So if you're... If you're right, why would I worship a God that the demons flee when I tell them to? And that just made them all the matter. And they ended up burning him then in the bull. <clears throat> so that was, that was Antipas. That's what the Eastern Orthodox tradition says. So he's commending the church here that even in the midst of that, they stayed faithful. Now this is the only, that's the only reference to persecution and suffering there's some other stuff later here that I think takes a little bit of precedence there's some of the other churches I think that there was even more persecution than here <clears throat> but that was Antipas um, the Satan's throne thing I'm going to talk about that a little bit a couple angles to this <clears throat> it says I know where you dwell where Satan's throne is so this this could be a reference to Kind of a, it was it was definitely Pergamum was a seat of religious cult activity. Multiple of the Roman and Greek gods had their main temples there. One of them was Zeus. He was he was kind of the head god there. And there is there's actually a thing 
called the Altar of Zeus that a lot of people think is the actual seat of Satan that this is referring to. Whether or not that's the case, I'm not 100% sure, but it could be. So there was this Altar of Zeus. And what's really interesting, if you like, if you like historical things like I do, so this, this altar to Zeus fell into ruins, obviously, as the city of Pergamum fell into ruins, kind of with the Roman Empire's decline. But in, in 1864, there was a German archaeologist who started to excavate in Pergamum, and he found the altar of Zeus. And they really liked this thing. They thought, wow, there was, for some reason, it seems like the Germans at that point were really fascinated with ancient architecture. Well, in 1901, you know, some years went by, but in 1901, they started dismantling or taking, yeah, dismantling this altar and taking all the parts and pieces, the the stone, back to Germany and began assembling it in their in a museum they call the Pergamum Museum. And it was in 1930 that the Pergamum Museum was finished and opened to the public. And in the Pergamum Museum is the altar of Zeus that a lot of people call the seat of Satan. And there was a very insignificant figure in history known as Adolf Hitler. (coughs) He really liked this thing for some reason. And he actually had, I don't know, have any of you ever seen pictures of the, the huge stadium at Nuremberg where he would give his, his uh, speeches? Anybody ever seen a picture of that? <clears throat> okay, so the whole stage area is modeled after the altar of Zeus. He told his head architect and head builder to build this. It's not an exact copy, but it is modeled to be similar to this altar of Zeus. <clears throat> Don't know if that's significant or not. We just, we know there were some very, very evil things that went on there. And who knows, maybe there is something to do with, with that seed of Satan. And it is still in the Pergamon Museum. Uh, it is not open to the public right now. It was closed in 2014 for renovations. Supposed to open in 2019, never did. Then it was supposed to be 2023, it's not. And now the latest thing I could find is that they say it's going to open by 2025. I have no idea what they're doing with this altar of Zeus, but it just makes you wonder what's going on. (laughs) But anyway, regardless, so those are the two things. There was, whether he was referring to the altar of Zeus as the seat of Satan, or whether he was referring to this as a center of demonic activity, and possibly Satan himself, because Satan is not like God in that he is omnipresent. He is one, and he's, oh, he can only be in one place. And so maybe this is where he made his center. Either way, this is where they were. <clears throat> so now went through a couple things that that he's kind of commending them for. He's commending them for being faithful, even during some of those hard times. But now we kind of switch gears. And in verse 14, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols. 
and practice sexual immorality. <clears throat> what is the teaching of Balaam? I went back and I read the story of Balaam, and it's it. It's a little. It was a little confusing to me because if you read, go back to Numbers chapter twenty-two. I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's like five chapters long, but you know the story of Balaam. <clears throat> I'll kind of briefly do an overview of it. So, so here came the children of Israel. They were right across the river from Moab, and Balak wanted to hire Balaam to curse the children of Israel. It makes you wonder, who was he in the first place? Like, because he definitely believed in God, and like he conversed with God. I don't know who this guy was. I really don't. And we don't really, there's not anything that tells us who or why. There was a prophet, so-called, um, there amongst the Moabites. I don't know. <clears throat> but Balak wanted to hire him to come and curse the children of Israel. Well, he sent some messengers they showed up and said, hey, we'd like to pay you all kinds of money to come and to curse the children of Israel. And he says, okay, let me go ask God what he's, what, what he's got to say. So that night, he asked God, and it, it, he talked to God. It sounds like just like Abraham and these guys. The, the language and the wording is, is Jehovah. He was talking to Jehovah. And he's like, hey, this is what's going on. What shall I do? And God says, no, don't go with them. All's well and good. He gets up in the morning and he tells them, go back home. I'm, I can't go with you. God says I can't go. Um, and actually in that conversation, God told him, I, these are my people and I have blessed them. And so therefore you cannot curse them. Okay, so go back to Balak and say, well, he, he won't come. God says he can't. So Balak, gets together another group of people, and these are higher officials. It says more honorable officials, and he sends them back again. And my guess is they also upped the ante with the money they were going to pay him. I don't doesn't say much about that, but that's kind of the language you get. And once again, same thing. Will you come and curse them, and we're going to basically make you rich and famous. And he's like, okay, well, I'm going to go, and I'm going to ask God again. So he did. Same thing. At night, ask God. And God said then, basically said, okay, yeah, you can go, but only do what I tell you. Only uh, say what I tell you to say. So then in the morning, Balaam gets up and goes with them. And it says, God was angry that he went with them. And I'm like, huh? Like, you just told him you can go with them, right? But only say what I want to say to you and then we know we know what happened on the road you know three times his donkey saw this angel of the lord with a flaming sword and Balaam got very angry with his donkey because it was not doing what it was supposed to do those of you who are horse riders probably have had an experience something like that when the horse just goes the way you don't want him to go <laughs> I'm not much of a horse rider so I don't know but finally after three times God opens his eyes and he sees the angel of the Lord. And once again, he tells him, basically he says, I was, I was ang I'm angry with you for going, but just only say what I want you to say. So he goes on, and it's a little bit, it didn't make a whole lot of sense to me why, why God was responding like this. 
but I'll, I'll get back to that. So he goes on, ends up, Balak takes him up to a high mountain, shows him some of the children of Israel, and he says, okay, curse him for me. And so he says, well, let me see what God wants me to say, and God gives him something, and so he begins to talk, and he blesses them. And he does it three times. He blesses them three times. And Balak is very upset. And then it says, and then Balaam went home. And that's the end of the story. And then, further on down through the scripture, so that's the story itself. So then, in, that's in Numbers chapter 22. In Numbers 31, the Israelites kill him. They're doing war, and it specifically says, and they also killed Balaam, the son of Beor. So they killed him. In Deuteronomy 23, it also talks about him, and I'm actually going to read a couple of these because there's, there's definitely something that happened that is not really told us in the original story. So Deuteronomy chapter 23 And this is verses 3 through 5. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever, because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor from Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. But the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loved you. Okay, but I thought he tried to curse them, but he blessed them instead. Anyway, something's, something is, seems to be missing. And I'm not going to read them all, but you go down through and look at every place where Balaam is mentioned in, in Scripture. There is multiple places. There's Deuteronomy 23. Joshua 13, Joshua 24, Nehemiah 13.2, Micah 6.5, and then three times in the New Testament, once in 2 Peter, once in Jude, and then this time in Revelation. And the, every single time, it is reminding the Israelites of Balaam and how bad of a guy he was and what he did and what God did to him for what he did. So what was his teaching and what was his sin? couple things that seem to make sense to me is this. One is, could it be possible that if God says something and we continually ask him, if God tells us, no, this is wrong, I don't want you to do this, and we come back again and ask him the same thing, Could that be a problem, maybe? <clears throat> I know the second time God said, well, yeah, you can go, but only say what I, what I want you to say. There was something about Balaam's motives that is not spelled out exactly in the story, but God knew them. God knew his motives, and if you, if you look at all those other places where Balaam is mentioned, it talks, uh, it, I think it's in Second Peter, where it, it mentions that he, he wanted the gain from unrighteousness. This money he was going to get paid 
was a big deal to him. And he really, really, really badly wanted it. And somehow or another, I think that was the motivation behind him going back to God and asking him something he knew already was against God's plan and against his will. <clears throat> Somewhere in that, there's, there's something to that. Because God was angry when he went. It was, it was like, I don't know, it makes a little bit of sense if you think of it from the perspective of a parent. <laughs> you know, your, your child asks you, well, can I do this? No, you can't do that. And then they know they're not supposed to, but then, you know, 10 minutes later, they come back in, Dad, can I do this? And after a while, you're like, okay, fine. Just go do it, and you're going to pay the consequences. Because I know that that's, that's not a good thing for you to do. But you keep asking, and so you're going to have to learn the lesson the hard way. I don't know. I wonder if maybe that's a little bit about what happened with Balaam. <clears throat> but then there's something. So we get all the way back now to Revelation chapter 2, where it says that Balaam taught Balak who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So at, in Numbers chapter 23, directly after the story of Balaam, immediately the children of Israel began to basically intermingle, intermarry, sort of, but basically start to do life with these Moabites. And they start to worship their idols, and they start to basically just become one with them and this is what resulted in a plague that came upon the Israelites and killed I think 24,000 and and so th this happened directly after and so it's not recorded in numbers but somehow or another according to all the rest of the scriptures it seems like Balaam went to Balak and said okay well I'm not allowed to curse them but here's what you can do you're not going to destroy them by force you can't war against them because God said, I'm, they're my people. I'm going to protect them. But what you can do is you can be friends with them. And you can be buddy-buddy and you can start pulling them in. And, and better than that, you know, get them involved with some harlots and some prostitutes. and Get them involved in some marriages with these people. Let them have some kids. And then all of a sudden they're starting to be connected and, and maybe then they'll start of their own accord going against what God wants. That's exactly what happened. And God judged him for it. <clears throat> so how does that apply to the church in Pergamum and how does that possibly apply to us? In verse 15 in, in uh, Revelation 2 there, it also says, it connects one other thing into this. So also you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. I've mentioned the Nicolaitans before. I won't do a long thing on them, just a reminder. The Nicolaitans were, some, were people who, who taught that there's a division between body and spirit and that I can do sins in the body while my spirit is yet perfect and saved and fine. It doesn't really affect my spirit. I can do pretty much whatever I want in the flesh because the flesh is corrupt and cursed and it's going to die and all that and my spirit's saved and it's all good. So that's what they were teaching. And that's very, it comes down, Christ comes down really hard on the Nicolaitans in, in Revelation here. 
How does that tie into what, what the teachings of Balaam are? <coughs> I think this is, this is how the best that I can understand of how this applies to us today. Are there ever times when we are tempted to do something that's a little unethical or wrong or just a little bit sinful because it'll make me money? I'll get, get some good gain from this. How often, and I'll even, put, I'll put out this, I'll make this about the American church. I know we're here and it's so easy to say, well, we don't do that. Well, maybe not as often as some others, but we're tempted to sometimes. You know, how many times in our church, in the American church, do people may without even thinking it weigh these two things? Okay, I've got, You've got making some money or being completely honest, upright, and ethical. And they're like, yeah, yeah, I'll take the money. I think that's a little bit about, that's, that's a little piece of that sin of Balaam. And it's this thing of compromise a little bit with the world. You know, God told Balaam he, he can't curse him. Well, he didn't curse him, but... He did something else, and I don't know if he ever got paid or not, but maybe he did because he figured out a way. That he's like, hey, well, here, I can't curse him, but here's some advice. Now, please pay me because I really want that. <laughs> and so what, am I, what are we willing to give up in, in honesty and in integrity in order to gain some worldly favor, some worldly goods? That's where it can easily apply to us as a, an American church who's not really in persecution. We're in pretty good times, even though we gripe about the price of eggs. We're still in really good times. And in good times, it's this kind of thing that we fight against. <clears throat> Let's not compromise for the sake of something like that. last couple verses here he who has an ear let him hear what the spirit says to the churches to the one who conquers I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it I think this is this is just references you know hidden manna is sustenance manna is is something that God gave to his people to sustain them it's food <clears throat> and I think he's just saying the one who holds firm and holds fast through this, I will sustain him. <clears throat> and then a new name, you know, who names, who names kids? You name your kids. You name your children. And he says here, I will give you a white stone with a new name written on it. I think that's a little bit of just a, a signification of you belong to me, you're in my family. And there's, I'm sure there's a whole lot more that I don't understand about this, this imagery. And someday when, we, when I get to heaven, I can ask Jesus, what do you mean? What's the big deal about the white stone with the new name? And we'll know. <laughs> but I just want to encourage us, in the good times, which we are still in, let's not compromise a little bit 
dabble with the things of the world because yeah, it gains me something. And that's, I'm not saying this to just you, I'm saying that to myself as much as anybody. I think that's, that's what we need to keep in mind. It's so easy in the good times to compromise, but let's not do that. Father in heaven, <coughs> just thank you once again for your word. Thank you that you have the two-edged sword and you can get all the way down to the deep intentions of our heart. And Lord, I ask that you would, you would show us those things. And when we're shown those things, bring us to repentance and to, to restoration. Because as we repent for those things, we can be restored and we can bit by bit be put back together and become more like you because that's what we want. Just thank you for each one that's here. Bless them as they go. In your name I pray, amen.